Hey, thanks for tuning in to today's episode. When you're done, make sure to head to our website at unapologists.com where you can see all of our latest updates and our season lineup. And while you're there, head over to the support page so you can find out ways to keep the show going. Enjoy today's episode. Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Unapologist Podcast, where the best PD happens in your backyard. Tonight, we have the man who Aristotle plagiarized, Christopher Bolson. <laughs> Vito, you know what? If I'm the man who Aristotle plagiarized, well, then really he plagiarized you, because I've been plagiarizing you for a decade. Oh, no wonder why you're in such a bad spot. I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs> Vito McKenzie on this end. Uh, Chris... Chris. Hey, Vito, how's it going? Oh, just, just lovely. Lovely. That's what I like to hear. You know, I'm doing absolutely fantastic. Um, You know, we're, uh, we're recording from a different location tonight. For me, I am in Ontario as opposed to Alberta. So it's really kind of, it's neat at time of recording. I'm in Ontario. Uh, Did the, did the, the the long haul drive uh, at time of recording. Um, so yeah, I'm doing good. Got my, got my sea legs back. And, uh, how are you doing my friend? What's new? What's exciting? Good. It's, 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 it's nice to have you in the same time zone for once. And, and yes, we're on the, literally on the same time page. That's great. Now things have been good on this side. Just been uh, at the time of recording, relaxing, getting really just myself rested up after that wonderful, crazy year we've had. Uh, but I got a question for you. What can I do for you tonight? What's the question? You know, one thing I've been thinking, what's, what's been your biggest win as a teacher? I've always wanted to know that. What's been your biggest win? You know, I'm going to take that. I, I like the question, Vito. I, uh, at the end of this school year, at the end of the, the last school year, rather, I, you know, you get, you get cards from a few students and different things. I received a card at the end of last school year that was from a student who I did not teach. And... I, I, you know, I thought it was going to be, you know, what was printed in the card and then just the student's name, but there was a two, two paragraphs that said, you know, Mr. Polson, uh, I never had you as a teacher, but in the six years that I was at this school, like you were the face of the school to me and wow. to many people who will never tell you that, but the lifeblood of this school and when people think of of our school, they think of you. It's it, you're the person, and um, that was that was the biggest. You know, I, I dare I say biggest win ever. And I, you know, I have pieces of paper that says I did good stuff. But like that card was a win, both in two ways. Number one, um, made me feel like who I am as a person and as an educator um, that it does make a difference even when you don't teach the student. And number two, it was a win that I needed because, you know, last year was hard. Mm-hmm. And and so that was a win that I needed. So in two ways, it was really big. So, but, but Vito, enough about me. No one wants to hear about my sentimental no, stuff. No, no. How about you? About, no one wants to hear from How me either. How about you? No one wants to hear from me. Everyone wants to hear from you. I get no. fan, I get thousands of fan mail every single day saying, we want to know about Vito. Vito, what's been your biggest win? I, I, I'm, it's a toss-up. One of them was this year having students come back to me after the gamut of courses I've taught, saying that religion was the course that stuck up to them the most. Amen. Uh, because it's the one that made them think. 
and they really liked uh, what I did with it. And so as someone who does master's thesis on teaching religion and ways of engaging, you know, this made me proud. It, it was between that and that one time I warmed up my fish in the staff microwave Ooh. and got away with it. Wow. It's a toss up between the two. But anyway, well, enough from us. Enough not, from no us. One, no one wants to hear from us. No one wants to hear from us. Nobody. Nobody. Especially because when we have guests like tonight. Oh, we're you don't talk about big wins tonight. We got a guest who's, who's going to just tell us all about it. Like nothing but big wins with our guest tonight. We have someone to, with us tonight. She's been teaching for 14 years. One of those has been in Japan. First career was in public relations. Uh, she was... Born and raised on the traditional ancestor and unceded lands of the Mi'kmaq people in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She is currently the English and Literacy and Contemporaries Consultant with the Ottawa Catholic School Board, having gotten this appointment after winning the Director of Education Award for her outstanding work and forward-thinking ways and techniques and pedagogy in the classroom. I am so pumped to have her on the show tonight. We have Erin Doak with us. Erin, welcome. Erin Doak, welcome to the show. Wow, that's quite the intro veto. Thank you so much. And thank you both for having me here. It's a it's an absolute pleasure. Oh no, the pleasure is ours because really we come here to bring on amazing people and steal their ideas. <laughs> He's that's not lying. <laughs> So you know, I've been stealing your ideas all year. Come on. Uh, <laughs> I owe you a couple. No, 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 you do not. <laughs> um, with all our guests, like we, we love to hear your story. So tell us your story. Like what got you into teaching and, and the path you're on today? Yeah. So my path to teaching is uh, it's, it's a bit of a winding road. It, uh, in the end, it really was a matter of um, listening to my inner child. I really have the belief that if we pay attention to who we are as children, it reveals a lot about our authentic selves. At least that's been my experience. So when I was a child, I used to gather all the kids in the neighborhood and all of my three siblings, and I'd play school with them all the time. So much that um, my grandfather, he made me a chalkboard for Christmas one year. And... Wow. Um, yeah, I still have my, I've saved it and, um, it, it's still at my parents' house and, uh, my nieces and nephews, their grandchildren use it. So it's becoming one of these heirlooms, but it was, it was my childhood passion or dream, I guess, if you will. My very first play that I auditioned for grade six, I wanted to be the teacher of Anna Green Gables. I loved Anna Green Gables, but I was more like focused in on the teacher of Anna Green Gables. Um, and all of my favorite movies, if I look back now, were, you know, um, uh, Mona Lisa's Smile and all, anything that Goodwill Hunting and anything that had to do with education and teaching and empowering people. So it was always my dream. But when I got into university, um, I was playing basketball and I was very competitive and I was also in public relations. And I had a mentor who said, you know, you really need to pursue a career in writing. And uh, so I, I listened and I kind of went down that path for a while. I worked in uh, as a communications and media relations advisor in the federal government, uh, corporate nonprofit sectors, and I loved it. But I had, I was working at Canada Border Services and I had the most amazing mentor 
Um, I think mentors are really, really important. And that's why I highlight that. Um, and I said to her, you know, I, I love this job. And I know this is what everybody wants when they graduate. But I feel like there's something missing. And I feel like I just have, you know, a stone unturned or something I haven't done. And, you know, she said, well, what do you think it is? And I said, I think I want to try teaching. I think I want to go to Japan and try teaching and just make sure that this, that, you know, this here is the, my forever job. I need to make sure. And she said, well, you know what? I believe we have to do that. I think you have to have no regrets. So she said, I'll hold your position. Go try it out. Go take a year's leave and figure that out. Wow. So, yeah. So that was a big turning point for me. And uh, I packed my bags is the first time I ever left Halifax and uh, headed to Japan by myself. And uh, I fell in love with teaching. So that there was no turning back after that. I realized that's, you know, I went right back to my inner child and who I really was. And, and so that's how I, I got into teaching a little bit later on. I think that's so cool. Yeah. I think that speaks volumes about the trust in you. It's like, yeah, you know what? I think you should do this. Like how many times have we get an opportunity to discover what our real dream is? That was really cool. So tell us about your experience in Japan then. Like what, what was it over there that just said, yep, this is it. It's relationships. It's, you know, it's, um, it's connections that you make with people and, and public relations is all about building relationships, right? It's all about, using communication to build relationships between an organization and, and, and various publics. But teaching is all about relationships, but it's on a much deeper level. And I, I've never felt like I'm the, the teacher or the expert in any of my relationships with students or colleagues. I always felt like there is a mutually beneficial relationship happening where people are always teaching you things and vice versa, and it's this reciprocal thing. And so it was even made more clear and more neat in Japan because there was a language barrier. And so when you are building relationships with people without language, you realize how much relationships are built on the nonverbal, right? And they're built on what you feel in your heart, right? So um, I built some of the most meaningful relationships in my life with such few words um, in Japan. And uh, I even had my students come over for my wedding. Um, but it was just, I, Japan, you work really, really long hours. And it's, it you go at a pace that is almost unimaginable to the North American. But when you love what you do, it doesn't feel like work. And I think that that's what I learned there is I might work an, an eight hour shift in PR in, in Canada, but sometimes I can feel really long. Whereas I might work a 14 hour day in Japan, but I got so caught up in the people and what I was doing that it just didn't feel like work. So I, I knew that I needed to be, you know, doing that. And it, it was more than a job for me. It was just a life that I wanted to have. 
And it seems like it's a really organic process. Like I'm hearing you say, like there's this, there's this inner child, there's this authentic self that leads not necessarily to just the job of teaching, but the recognition of the relational nature that human beings have with each other and finding mm -hmm. yourself in public relations that does that on one level, but then doing kind of a deep dive to that next level of relational uh, you know, being with, with people. And I think that's such a, such a cool story to have. Yeah. Thanks. So you come back from Japan and you're in the classroom and what, what, what are some things that just kind of get your mind working the way it did towards kind of the, the things you were doing in the classroom? The students. So the students really are what change my practice year after year after year. I, I have to admit, I am a bit of an innovation junkie. Vito's worked with me before, and I am that really annoying colleague that's always like, hey, everyone, look at this new app. Let's try teaching this way, you know. Um, so I, I certainly do have this um, drive to keep learning and changing and and you know, thinking that we can always do better, not that we're doing anything wrong, but I, I love innovative innovation. Um, but it really, most of the time it comes from the students. So they might say something in the class to me, or I might meet somebody who opens something up in me. And I think, you know what, I need to get more of these stories that this student's going to like, or I need to try this because this student won't, you know, engage with that. Or, you know, this particular student learns this way. So maybe we need to create some new assessments that's going to light this student up. So it's more, it really comes from them to, you know, in the end, but it goes hand in hand with loving innovation too. So really following the lead of your students and then innovating with them as you go. Well, yeah, that was one of my big insecurities when I got hired at the school board as a consultant, because I, you know, people thought that I was really innovative and <laughs> because they had seen maybe some projects that I had presented or, or genius hour or whatnot. And the reality of that was you introduce an idea to kids, but they do all the innovating and they do all the real creative stuff. You just open the opportunities. And whenever I didn't know how to do something, I'd say, okay, can somebody show me how to do this? How did we get through this? And they would do it all. So then you step into the role as a consultant. Well, now you don't have all these resources at your fingertips and you realize it was the students making you look good the whole time. Right. So, <laughs> and I think that really speaks to, to, you know, like, you know, to any of our listeners out there, especially younger teachers, don't be afraid to throw out the ideas because that's where the innovation comes from. Cause those kids in the class, they're the ones who are going to make them explode. And and they're not all going to be, they're not all going to be 10 out of 10s. You know, it's not every idea is not in work, but if we don't try the idea, it never has the opportunity to be a huge innovation that we can, that we can go with. It, it's so true. And I think, you know, what I learned um, with students is it's really important to, set the stage that learning is messy, you know, and uh, it's not a linear process and to model those mistakes in front of them. And I've found my most powerful moments is when a student thinks you're learning with them versus you being the expert delivering and ha having all the answers. And um, when they know that you're a co-learner and when you know that you're kind of down on the ground learning with them and asking them like, how do you think we should 
you know, do you think these questions are good questions? How can we make a better question here? Or um, if I remember one year we were working on book creator and I couldn't figure something out and a kid came over and said, you know, if you do it this way and then you bring this in and I said, oh, that's great. Like show the rest of the class. And then they did. Then you now see that student has an expert role too. And um, but to get them to that point, you have to really model that learning is messy, that mistakes are part of the process and model that and show that vulnerability as a teacher too. And I think that's what we struggle with sometimes as teachers is letting go of that expert role and, you know, being the the co-learner with the kids in the room. And it's also letting go of our comforts too in the classroom as well. This is what I know, this is what I'm comfortable with. And if I get thrown off guard, oh, what do I do, right? Uh, and so in that consultant role, like you, you've, you've moved into that role and, and I, it's been wonderful. You've been making some big changes since moving in there. And I just want to know like, what's, what's been your inspiration and like, what vision do you have, uh, specifically for the language arts classroom? Well, you know, Vito, I would love to take the credit for all of these great changes that we're seeing at the board, but, uh, it, it, the board has really made some incredible changes in the past few years. And I just happen to be blessed to be there when they're taking place. So I actually came to the board when um, they had their first equity department and their first equity and diversity advisor. Um, and at the very beginning of implementing the equity framework, which aligns with my educational beliefs um, and it aligns really well with my two portfolios, English and contemporary studies. So I've really enjoyed being a part of, you know, diving deeply into this framework and implementing it across the board. Um, and I think that it's such a timely thing in that um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action in educations number 62 and 65. Um, they really underscore the need for today's students to learn about Indigenous issues, knowledge, perspectives, you know, and history. And I don't, you know, never before, well, I shouldn't say never before, but I think right now Canada is sitting here and reflecting as, you know, the recent discovery of all the children is coming out. And we're reflecting on now that, you know, these calls to action need to be put in place. And so, um, you know, in terms of vision, I think I, I couldn't be prouder to be part of a board that's been very proactive in implementing the calls to action in the Truth and Reconciliation because our board made MBE compulsory last year when I came on. So I've been able to work on that. But my vision really is um, to make sure that every student in our care can see themselves reflected in an authentic way in the curriculum and that they understand their strengths and their passions um, and feel validated when they leave our care. And I think that's really the bigger vision. Um, but then when you break that down, you have a number of initiatives, right? So I've been really lucky to be a part of these changes as they're taking place. Okay, so just for our listeners outside of Ontario, the NBE uh, course you spoke of, it's a they've Ontario has changed the grade 11 English course with a uh, grade 11 uh, Indigenous Studies course, um, in which you look at Indigenous literature from Indigenous people. 
Uh, yeah. and, and so that that's that's the the focus of the course for the year which is amazing it's wonderful we got to see that first year here um yeah. but to, to tack it on to, to what you said at the end there so each student can see themselves in the literature so how, how do we do that do we like is it through choice is it through revamping our canon um what are, what are, what are we doing here <laughs> yeah there's uh, there's no quick fix that's for sure um you know, I think the most important thing is there's no one size fits all text for students. And that's why, you know, Cortex, Kelly Gallagher, he is the one who said to us when he spoke to our board that Cortex are becoming more and more problematic because we have so many kids with different reading levels in our classrooms. Um, we have so many different identities and we know that engagement is step one of, uh, you know, developing the literacy learner. So. I think, you know, what we need to do is provide choice and voice. And that's actually mandatory in our in our English curriculum, seven to twelve. Under the reading expectations, it says, you know, that you have to have both student and teacher selected text. So I think we really need to to focus on that expectation because it, it's often overlooked. Um, and I think that by providing more choice where students can choose what they're reading you are ensuring that they can see themselves in the curriculum. But, you know, I, it's great to, I really like to go by Dr. Rudine Sims. Um, she has, she looks at literature as mirrors, windows, or sliding glass doors. So it is really important to see yourself in the curriculum or that students see themselves in the curriculum. That's a mirror. And that's really important. But it's also important that students understand others. And that's the windows where they get a window into other people's lives. And that's where, you know, you get that empathy. And that's where you get create those global citizens of understanding um, the larger world around us and how it works. And the sliding glass doors, I mean, that's a great one, too, because that's a complete escape from reality. And that's where you can read books where students can imagine another world or what, what the world could be. Um, so I like to think about books like that. And I think, you know, we start by asking students what they want to read, provide choice. We have um, literature circles, all own voice literature circles you can borrow from our, our board office to try things out. And as we're trying it out, get student feedback, find out what do they like? What are they connecting with? You know, what's making them love reading and what's making them engage and talk about the world and talk about, you know, what they're studying. So I would start there. But um, again, going back to um, Kelly Gallagher and Penny Kittle's work is uh, voice choice and volume, right? And so we don't need to just be reading um, books to create this diversity. We can bring in podcasts, we can bring in smaller texts, poetry. Um, there's all sorts of shorter texts that we can bring in to ensure that everyone's voice is included. We tend to go right to books and think that that's how we do it. Um, and I think we do also have to re reflect on what we currently have, right? And, and critically look at or critically think about why am I choosing what I'm choosing to put in front of this student. 
that's become very clear in the pandemic because education has never been more transparent. You have everybody looking in your classroom, everybody's seeing what you're putting out there, whereas nobody really did before. Parents are seeing it, um, colleagues are seeing it, everybody sees what texts are being put out there. And, and I, as a consultant, have gotten more questions this year than ever before on texts that were shared with students saying, do you think this is okay? Um, give me your advice on this. Should we pull this text from the curriculum? Because it's so transparent now. And so instead of saying yes or no, it's a matter of developing that criticality. How do we do that ourselves? How do we know what we're putting in front of kids is good for them, right? Why are we doing what we're doing? So I think building that critical awareness is important. And it also builds on, on uh, the critical reflection of the individual teacher on, on, on their own pedagogical approaches and the programs that they're building in their classroom. So I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then in your role thus far, what do, what do you think has been your biggest, biggest success? Like what's been your biggest win? I would say the biggest win is making the MBE course, like Vito said, it's um, understanding First Nations, Métis and Inuit voices. Um, it is making that a compulsory course uh, so that every student that graduates from our board um, has an understanding of uh, Indigenous history, Indigenous issues, and understands what it takes to move truth and reconciliation forward. So I think right now at this moment, that was one of the greatest successes because we're just looking at what's happening um, you know, in Canada. And I'm thinking, I'm really happy that we've done this um, and that we're ready to keep doing this work. But, um, but you know, that it's a, it's a, it, I would, if you asked me this a year ago, I'd probably say it was our move towards own voices because, you know, post George Floyd, um, it became so evident that when we're uh, trying to understand racism, that it really should be done from the voices of those who've experienced it versus, you know, the people who, are on the outside writing about it. And so our move towards own voices last year would probably, you know, at that time been one of the greatest successes, but it changes depending on, you know, where we are and who needs us the most. Yes. And I, I, I love that, that those have been happening because I know as in a consultant role or when you're ever in a role that's overseeing quite a large number of people it's very hard to nudge the boat a little bit and and you have to kind of pick your what where am i going to focus what am i really going to channel my energy towards so it's that you know i've seen it from the teaching end and it's been wonderful so that's awesome I'm really happy to well and you've been so great and you've been such a great advocate and ally um, with the work that you've been doing and i looked at all of your units for the long way down with jason reynolds and You've just been doing such a great job, Vito. So oh, this um, is not really the Vito McKenzie job. show. This is. A... <laughs> oh, look! Someone and agrees that... with the stuff that I say every day. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I appreciate you saying that, but I mean, I, I come from uh, you know a place of defiance <laughs> so it's not always it doesn't come across the same way as your approach does, which. Uh, which is 
empowering you know, as opposed to the bides. Uh, <laughs> you have a little bit of both mixed in there. Can I add one more thing, guys? Because I know you Chris can add was, as, many as many things as, as you, you want. want. You keep going. Okay, I would also say that one of the greatest successes has been getting a reading intervention program in almost every single one of our grade seven to 12 schools. So right now, the Ontario Human Rights Commission has launched um, an inquiry on a children's right to read. And the ministry will be issuing um, some set criteria in the fall as to you know, what the expectations are for all boards across Ontario to ensure that every student is able to read. Because we do assume that when kids get to grade seven, that they can read. And we know we have kids in high school that still can't. So um, I would say our board, as of this year, almost every high school has a reading intervention program for students that are reading either one to two or many um, grade levels below where they are. So I'm really, really proud of that. And we're going to be doing even, we're doing some, we're working on some things this summer with students to bridge those reading gaps caused by COVID. Um, but we're going to be doing even more next year. And that makes me really happy because we know that when it, when a student can read, then all of their school life and their self-confidence improves. So um, I'm really happy to see that. And I'm really happy to be a part of that. And that's a, been a great success coming into this role. I, I have to say too, I got a really big vibe when you said that our wins and our focus is going to change based on what's needed. And then you brilliantly outlined that without even, without even us thinking, saying what's one, two, and three, you gave us three really different things, but it, it you live by your words. And I love that. I got a huge vibe because I, I agree that, you know, we're going to find wins when something needs to get a win that's because that's what teachers do. You know, I, I, so I credit this to our, our new equity advisor, uh, Prince Ihoro. He said to me, um, when people say, you know, this summer we're working on a black history project to, to get more black history in our curriculum. And leading up to this, there was a lot of dialogue on, um, well, why isn't why is it just black history? Why aren't we including other histories? And he explained it so eloquent to me. And then it it reframed my thinking where he said, you know, you think about it, if you have children and one of your children is hurting, right? You stop and you pause and you focus on that child and you focus on what they need and getting them back to a good place. It doesn't mean you don't love your other child. And it doesn't mean that you're not still supporting and there for your other child, but you have to stop and pause and give people what they need when they need it. And I thought that was just such a beautiful way, probably because my bias is I have children and I've experienced that at times and their personalities are very different. So I know what one kid needs is very different from the other, but our students and all of the different you know, groups that we have in the communities that we have in our classrooms are the same. So I try and think about that throughout the year, you know, through the pandemic, the Asian community was hurting, you know, and just a few weeks ago, 
our Muslim community was was hurting very badly. And so you shift and you think about how is that impacting the kids in front of me and how can I support them through the curriculum? So, yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, so with all this in mind, uh, next year, you know, charting new territories yet again, and uh, the language arts classroom, I think it's evolved and it is evolving. Uh, what practices do you think sh uh, teachers should teachers, specifically language arts teachers, uh, shift towards in this upcoming year? I think we need to shift towards the students. That's really, I think, especially next year, we start with who are the students in front of us? What is their story? What are their identities? Um, how are they returning to us after a pandemic? And that's, I think, where I would start. What are their needs academically, emotionally, um, spiritually? What are their reading levels? And I think that's going to be a shift, especially from grade seven to 12. How do you determine the reading levels? Um, and then plan from there, you know, then start to plan your literature and your pedagogical practices. But I think the shift should really be a student centered approach, especially after a pandemic. And then when you get into all the exciting literacy stuff that I like to talk about, um, <laughs> I, I would love to see more book clubs that really, you know, fits into giving students choice and voice. Um, and, you know, just seeing teachers being comfortable getting outside that comfort zone of just teaching one book at the same time with everybody, that, that would be great. And just knowing that there is a huge community now out there across, you know, at least our board that's really moving towards this so we can all reach out and rely on each other and, um, you know, figure out the different ways we're doing that. Um, I also think if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's really made us as English teachers reflect on assessment. You know, I've had so many English teachers reach out to me and say, I, it is so hard to mark this many essays. I have three essays to mark this semester digitally, and I'm just staring at a screen all the time. And so my question is always, why are you marking three essays in one in 21 days? Like, you know, let's rethink this for you and for the kids. <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, taking a look at um, assessment and shifting it to feedback, you know, and uh, so we will, you know, I'm hoping to really use um, Sarah Zerwin's book, Pointless. It's an English teacher's guide to more meaningful grading and doing, you know, virtual book clubs where we can build a community of educators that can kind of talk about, all right, you know, let's, let's look at how we're assessing what's working, where we can improve. Um, and what assessment is going to uh, serve our students. And I love the fact that you mentioned why you just assigning essays in English class. Like there's a whole array of different ways of, of giving students feedback and assessing their strengths and, and needs. Um, any, anything you've come across that you're like, that, that, that's a fun idea. That's a smart idea. Because I know some teachers out there are like, oh, what do I do instead of an essay? Well, I've seen a podcast. I've seen, 
<laughs> I've seen photo essays, which are really cool. Um, they've shifted to photo essays. I love, um, I love assignments that call students to action and to advocate that kind of replicate the, the real life skills that they will need in, in the real world. And not that they won't need a literary essay. They will if they go to university and pursue you know, a degree in, in English literature. Um, and I do think that it's very important to know how to formulate a good argument you know, so I'm not undermining the value of an essay. It's important. Do I think that you need to write it three times every grade from nine to 12? Absolutely not. I think we really need to start thinking about the global competencies, you know, and how are we developing those um, in our students? How are they becoming global citizens? How are they becoming better collaborators and creators and communicators using their character? Um, so open letters are huge right now. I've seen some beautiful open letters to prime ministers and politicians, um, calling them to action, you know, and having them advocate on things that come from literature, that come from rich discussions in our classrooms. Um, so I think that, you know, blog posts, digital portfolios, and my absolute favorite is Genius Hour. Um, because, you know, you're giving students 10% of their semester or 10% of a unit, teachers can decide, to work on whatever they want. And, and in the end, it has produced the best assignments that I've ever seen in my life that I could have never dreamed of making up. So sometimes that I think that the genius hour is the big winner because that's when you get products that you know students come up with versus you it goes right back to throwing out the idea and letting them run with it absolutely yeah yeah it, actually can i share a really cool story please absolutely. do this is the unapologist you don't you just go right <laughs> forward i'm not going to apologize for this because i just found out about it so mm, sorry i'm losing my voice i will apologize for that nope, um, do that <laughs> um, in grade nine, I was teaching a grade nine religion course. And I had a group of students who most of them didn't go to church and they really were not buying into what I was teaching. And I was try I was pulling out all the stops. I was like, pulling out book creator and podcasts and everything you can imagine. I think I even was like, we're going to go on a field trip to a movie. If you get through these assignments, like, <laughs> and I really came to, I, I was thinking about it. I'm like, what is it? Like, what am I going to do? And I thought I got to, they've got to find their connection to faith. Right. Before I start talking about, you know, the Beatitudes and the, and the, you know, scripture, they need to understand what faith is and they, they need to find their connection. So I thought, that's it. I'm going to try genius hour. And the only stipulation I gave them, as I said, you are allowed to um, research, create and present anything you want. So long as it strengthens or promotes our faith. That's the only stipulation. Well, <laughs> 
That year, those students came up with the most unimaginable assignments. Um, one girl, she, she came up with a project where she's passionate about traveling. And so her inquiry question is, where does God show up in our travels? And so she made a scrapbook. That was her product. And she made a scrapbook of everywhere she's traveled and how God was communicating to her in those travels. And one of the most amazing images that she showed was New York City. And she showed a bird's eye view of New York, um, Central Park. And sorry, Central Park is in the middle of New York City. And all around New York is concrete. It's all man-made. And in the heart of New York, her, her metaphor or her analogy was God is still in the heart of New York City, you know, and that's where everyone comes to find their peace in New York, to find their clarity, to center themselves. And she said it was it was in Central Park that I was able to really ground myself in New York City. So I thought that was just such a, a brilliant reflection. And then I just and I had another student who was passionate about making videos. So he made this video and I ended up showing it at a staff meeting one time. Vito, I don't know if you were there. So another teacher, she kind of liked this idea and she tried it in her classroom this year. So three years later and the same student was in her class and he did such a good job. He used it as his uh, application to get into digital animation to make, I, I forget the name of the program, but he's now going to university to study film and animation. And he used that those Genius Hour products as part of his application. So she had presented this in her retirement saying that this is what sparked his journey to find his career. So that was one of my greatest successes as a teacher is just knowing that when you leave it up to them, right, they can find their path. And uh, it's nice to be a witness to that. Amazing, amazing. Um, just that they take ownership and they, they, you allow them to be perfect and they, they do, they, they, show, <laughs> they show you they're capable of it. So in your opinion then, what, what should teachers be unapologetic about in their practice? I think teachers should be unapologetic um, about advocating for and empowering their students. If you know something's not serving your students, then advocate for them. And uh, I, I bring it back to my, one of my favorite Toni Morrison quotes. She says, I tell my students, when you get these jobs that you have been so br brilliantly trained for, just remember that your real job is that if you are free, you need to free somebody else. And if you have some power, then your job is to empower somebody else. And so I think that we have to be unapologetic about freeing one another from the things that don't serve our students, even when there's pushback. Um, and I think we have to be unapologetic about empowering our students, leveraging their voices, especially the students who have been historically marginalized. I love it. I love it so much. Um, Vito. Chris, Vito, I might be in a different time zone, but you know what's happening. Oh, that sun happen? gets that sun's getting lower because you know what time it is. Oh, it I, is I, it's, Polson point, point time. time. It is Polson point time. 
My goodness, we've had another wonderful, wonderful masterclass tonight with Erin Doak. We've been really lucky to get to hear her talk tonight. And your pulse and points for tonight. It was another episode, Vito, uh, where there's a lot of big vibes because I was vibing hard tonight with a lot of the things that were being said. Um, but we got to get through those pulse and points. Number one, my friends, my listeners, listen to that inner child because there's something about your authentic self in your uh, in your inner in your inner child, and you're going to find your path. Um, number two. It's not that we're doing anything wrong, but we can always innovate. We can always do better. Number three, teachers, seriously, ask yourselves, why am I choosing the materials that I'm choosing? Number four, who are the students in front of us? What are their stories? What are their needs? And start your planning there. And our fifth and final pulse and point for the night, get out of that comfort zone. You got to get out of that comfort zone. But we have the big vibes because tonight we were vibing with Aaron Doak. Hey, you heard it here. Mentors are important. Find yourself a mentor. I don't care if in your first year, your last year, we all need mentors. If you can be a mentor, be a mentor. If you need a mentor, find a mentor. I love it. Um, friends, this job, it's about relationships. It's about relationships and big vibrate here. Let the students lead and innovate with them because friends, our focus and our wins as educators and our wins in the field of education, they're going to change based on what and who needs us to have a win for them. It's not about us. It's about where those wins need to come from. And of course, how are we developing those global citizens and and and, and listeners? Don't be uh, be be unapologetic about advocating for and empowering your students. Aaron Doak, you brought the house down tonight. I loved it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you both so much. You're such a pleasure to chat with. Thank you. Oh, thank you. The pleasure is ours. And if you want to check out what Aaron's up to, uh, she's pretty active on Twitter at Aaron Pelham Doak, P-E-L-H-A-M-D-O-A-K. So check her out there. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Unapologist Podcast. Join us next week when we'll talk with great people, learn new ideas, and tell the story of teaching as it happens. This is Vito and Chris signing off. Podcast.